Hey everybody, so welcome to um, the first week of post-plague, pre-apocalypse um, distance learning. Uh, this, I think this is how I'm going to end up doing um, most of our, our classes, I guess for the rest of the term, and hopefully not into next term. Um, but I'll put up the slides um, and then do a podcast uh, to narrate the slides so you can either... Um, Listen to it as a podcast. Listen to it and watch, or and and click through the slides, um, which I strongly recommend because there are going to be a lot of videos. Continue to be a lot of, of clips. I'm gonna mostly go with YouTube clips, um, and um, the other option is uh, most of the time I should just download as an MP4 as well, um, and you can download the MP4 and listen to it and click through the slides. Um, when you hear um, as you're listening to the slides, if you hear like a ding 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 sound. Um, that's usually the the signal to to flip the page, um, like those old um, read along books. Um, okay, let's start the show. So we are going to be looking at the 1970s. Um, normally, this is a two parter as well. What we uh, what I've been doing is I'll, I'll do some of the 1970s stuff. Um, here, um, well, not here, but in class. And then the second half, uh, I was having Gary come in, uh, Gary Shimokawa from um, Creative Media, because he was producing television in the 1970s, and especially um, his work on Archie Bunker, um, or sorry, not Archie Bunker, on uh, All in the Family. Uh, I don't think we're going to be able to do that now because we have, um, you know, quarantine, and so this that's not a good idea. Um, yeah, so instead I have a, I kind of extended it out a little bit. Um, the other thing is normally uh, we would watch Shaft or Star Wars and I can't put those online or I'm a little worried about putting those online just about, um, you know, there's piracy issues. Um, however, both of them are available on multiple different, um, in multiple different ways. Shaft, like... If you want to watch Shaft, uh, Amazon Prime has it relatively cheaply for rent, um, and Star Wars you can you know find all over the place. Um, okay, let's jump into the 1970s. Okay, so one of the things about the 1970s is. The 1970s is a hangover from the 1960s. Um, you know, every every decade is still dealing with the crap from the previous decade. That's that's just the reality of it. Um, but the, the the 1970s in particular, it's just this this hangover from the 1960s. Um, if you read Fear and Loathing, you, know, you can get a lot of the sense in Fear and Loathing of this. Um, and because on the one hand, the consensus is broken. Nobody still believes in the 1950s vision that no one believes i mean people still want that thing some people still want to have that 1950s american dream no one is convinced that everybody wants that i mean they have broken the consensus it's clear that that particular image of america is is not really going to be able to hold on to the the sort of hopes and dreams of people but also i mean just the reality it's it's not a realistic vision uh, it leaves so many people behind. Um, and, you know, that consensus is broken. 
the civil rights movement has broken it, the anti-war movement has broken it, um, et cetera. But um, a lot of the dreams of those movements are, are broken as well. Um, I mean, just look at the death. Martin Luther King is dead. Uh, JFK is dead. RFK is dead. Uh, Malcolm X is dead. You know, Medgar Evans is dead. They're all killed in the 60s, the late 50s and 60s. Um, all the hope of that era is, I mean, sometimes literally murdered. Um, Nixon is in charge. Um, Nixon is the exact, he is the antithesis of that entire 60s youth vision of changing things. Um, Nixon got elected basically on a hippie punching platform. Nixon was elected um, because he was, you know, he was in opposition to all of those changes um, imagined by the youth of the 60s, desired by the youth of the 60s. Um, and the, you know, the war itself keeps dragging on. Um, eventually, Nixon will, like, this is one of the few things, in terms of foreign policy, Nixon did get us out of Vietnam. Um, but, but America just lost the war. There was no getting out of it at that point. Uh, America had lost Vietnam. Um, there was no winning that war. It's a war of occupation. Um, so because Vietnam, I mean, God, that, that sort of um, impact on the American psyche of we're this incredibly power, I mean, we are a superpower, and we just lost to, to Vietnam. What the fuck is that about? Um, meanwhile, our economy is tanking. Oil prices are going up. Um, U.S. manufacturing is down in part because ma some of the manufacturers are just not paying attention to the desires of the consumers. So oil prices going down, we really did not need giant cars. Um, there's also, I mean, manufacturing, there's a lot to, of blame to go around for engineering. Um, our manufacturing standards are not incredibly high in the 1970s. Um, but a, a big part of it is just internationally there's competition now there was no competition in the 1940s and late 40s and 50s because everyone was blown the hell up but it's the 1970s and japan has retooled germany has retooled um there's competition now and that competition is is often cheaper than we are um basically yeah oh yeah oil prices um the, the Saudis and, and all the other major oil producers got together and they're like, you know, one of the problems is we're selling our oil too, too, just too cheap. So they cut off the oil supply. And so these small countries that had been basically um, not colonized, but really heavily uh, influenced and not controlled, but definitely um, pushed around by Europe and America... Um, and the Soviets, um, flex, um, they, they cut off the oil supply. They start producing far less oil. The price goes through the roof and the supply goes, through the, uh, goes down. Um, and it's, it's another moment where America starts realizing like, oh, wow, we're, we're not able to control everything. Some things are beyond our control. Other countries do have power and influence. Um, it is not just us. Um, and we're still, you know, an incredibly powerful nation. We still have enough nukes to turn the entire world into glass. But um, the, the vision of, like, inevitable American success is, is shattered. That's another part of this, this 60s hangover. Like, we don't, we're not, we're not everything we, we thought we would be. We, um, we're human. We failed 
um, on so many levels, just like so many other countries. Um, the seventies are, the seventies are going to suck. So what are some of the consequences of all of this? Um, on the one hand, yeah, the, the, a lot of the hopes and dreams of the 60s are dead, but people will continue to fight. Um, there will be continued social contestation. Um, you know, the anti-war movement will continue in the beginning of the, the 1970s. Um, there will be continued turmoil over civil rights. Um, the civil rights legislation of the late 50s and the 60s does not end racism. Um, it just moves to other, other places to fight over. Um, racism is so ingrained in the American um, fabric that, that, you know, granting people voting rights, that, that's just the start of it. There's so many different ways where our society was racist, is continues to be racist, um, that needed, uh, and in some cases still need to be fixed. Uh, so that is continued to be um, contested over. Uh, feminism. Um, women still did not have, like, nearly the, the, you know, back then, sexual harassment was still just accepted um, by so much of American society um, as the norm. Um, all of these things that all of that still has to be fought over. Um, it's just that it's not fought over with some of this, the same level of hope um, that arguably was there in the 60s uh, or yeah, in the 60s. Um, however, one of the things from all of that crap um, and we see this over again, over and over again, is turmoil and pain um, and depression leads to creativity. Um, you know, this is something we see over and over again. And when everybody's happy, a lot of the cultural product is shit, um, which makes me think maybe the 2020s are going to be an amazing decade uh, for cultural, cultural production. Um, because there's a lot of creativity that comes out of it. Um, part of it is what's known as the me generation. Um, and it's often thought of as, as just a totally selfish, it's often thought of through the 80s lens where those people just are like, hey, it's the 80s, I'm gonna get mine, I'm gonna get rich. Um, but it's a me generation in terms of stuff like, like things that are part of the me generation are things like jogging and yoga, where they're like, I'm, it's, gonna, it's important for me to take some time out to like pay attention to my fitness or I'm gonna, spend more time thinking about like meditation, um, not for any religious reason, but meditation just to sort of improve my, my well-being, my state of mind. Um, and a lot of it is escapist. Everything in society sucks, so I should maybe pay attention to improving me because improving society, um, improving society got Martin Luther King shot. So maybe I improve myself instead. Um, and the other thing about the 1970s is incredible. Like one thing we have never been bad at America is in, especially 20th century America, just incredibly good at taking cultural expressions and creativity, uh, social discontent and immediately commodifying it and repackaging it and selling it to the masses. Um, we will do that incredibly quickly. We will do that incredibly well and consistently, um, throughout the 1970s. Um, the final thing is, yeah, the clothes. I, I don't understand the clothes. I don't understand fashion in general. I don't understand what was going on with the clothes in the 70s. Um, but those lapels are out of control. Um, and no one should want to wear polyester. And I don't understand why they were so enamored with it. Um, so one of the things that's happening in the 1970s is television 
Um, it, it's part of this. Television gets better. Television is so much better in the 1970s than it had in the 60s. In the 1960s, it was, it was still the consensus heavily controlled. If you're going to, you know, you have to sleep in a separate bed, 1960s. In the 1970s, television actually starts to express a lot of the social discontent. Um, and part of that is Hollywood reacting to a desire from, from the people to just see more going on on television, to have something more than Leave it to Beaver. Um, and so you end up with shows like All in the Family. Um, so All in the Family is, the, the center of it is this guy, Archie Bunker, um, who's sort of the patriarch of this family. And it's his wife, who's not terribly smart. Um, and they are very sort of traditional in a like almost stereotypical way where they're um, sort of racist, sexist, close-minded, um, terrified of change, um, so terrified that someone else will have what they have that they ignore when, um, like they ignore the things that are keeping them from achieving more um, because they want to keep other people from achieving what they have. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of brilliant. Um, the way the show is set up, if you're a liberal and you're watching the show in the 1970s, what you're seeing is Archie Bunker is a buffoon. But a lot of the people who enjoyed the show were, were incredibly conservative and they watched it and they're like, Archie is right. But at the end of every episode, Archie is wrong. Um, like Archie is consistently wrong, but he's so bullheaded, it's impossible for him to understand that he is wrong. Um, and this, you know, they, the show is doing that. There, there's all these dynamics within the family with his daughter, um, who's kind of a, the daughter is a, um, kind of like hippie-ish, um, and then like, like kind of hippie-ish um, son-in-law um, who lives with them. Um, he's angry, essentially, at the son-in-law because he wants the, them to do well, but he's angry because the son-in-law has a, is going to college and has educational opportunities that he was denied. But his, his reaction isn't to try and get those opportunities himself or to support his son-in-law. His, his reaction is to be mad at his son-in-law for having them. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that goes on. But they also push all of these boundaries in the show. Um, so, like, some of them are stupid things. Like, it's the first show that where you hear a toilet flush. And that was a big sort of moment with the censors. Um, in this particular episode that I have up here, they say the word goddamn. And that was a huge deal. Like everyone turned in and was just like, oh, whoa, you can't say that on TV. And so they say it like 20 different times. Um, but they also dealt with stuff like uh, there's, there's sexual harassments, there's uh, rapes and attempted rapes of people within the family um, by, out, by others. And then there's the sort of dealing with the, out, the, the reaction to that. There's outright racism, sexism, et cetera. Um, and all of these social issues are dealt with in the show. And a lot of people just remember the show for, are like, oh, Archie Bunker was a racist. But the, the point was that, yeah, Archie Bunker is a racist, but Archie Bunker was always wrong. Um, and then, uh, let's see, there's MASH. MASH was, it was basically, it was just like the movie. It's a, MASH is a Korea War movie that's about the Vietnam War. Um, and it, again, it, it deals with a lot of, uh, it deals with racism. It deals with, it does a very poor job in terms of gender. It's an incredibly sexist show. 
But um, yeah, it's a it's an anti-war movie. The the whole thing it follows in the tradition of um, um, Catch Twenty Two, um, etc. It's just war and the way people operate in war um, and pretend like the norms are still. Re, like that the norms of society and institutions are still important um, in these incredibly just um, abnormal situations. Um, the entire thing is it's war is a farce is essentially the, it's it's incredibly um, harmful, lethal farce. And so MASH, I mean, you know, MASH does a, a lot of that same sort of thing. It's usually television to push um, social issues, um, social issues in, in ways that it was unimaginable for television to do that in the 1950s and 1960s, um, well, a lot of the 1960s. Um, and then, yeah, it's kind of funny. There's, this is the era where the, that song that sort of famous, the, the revolution will not be televised, um, is, is on, um, it comes out in that era. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny because in some ways, the revolution will not be televised, but this sort of um, sort of the ripples coming off of the revolution will be felt in television. The ripples of the revolution will be felt. It will be televised, uh, but not the revolution itself. At the same time, there's also a very sort of conservative um, element of the 1970s. And the, the conservative element is always there in entertainment. Um, it had been sort of that consensus part of the entertainment world. And we see it again in the 1970s. Um, but even here, I mean, honestly, there's a, there is more creativity in the conservative um, sort of backlashy response of the 1970s than there is in a lot of other eras. Um, in part because they have to, if, for it to make it in Hollywood, it has to be way more interesting and creative um, in the 1970s than it might have had to in the 1950s or even the 1960s. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's a heavy nostalgia uh, part of the 1950s um, or 1970s. There's a heavy like 1950s nostalgia in the 1970s. People looking back at the 1950s consensus and really sort of craving it. Um, so you see this, uh, Greece is this, uh, happy days. Um, it's like happy days is just so, oh, it's so sweet and cheesy. Um, like they even have, and they, they, they take characters like these stock characters, like, um, you know, Fonzie is supposed to be like the greaser character kind of, and it, they just kind of make him into this caricature. It's this fun, like in the 1950s, the, the greaser was a challenge to society and the 1970s nostalgia for the 50s. It's just this fun kind of thing of this, like this is what things used to be and it was great. Um, and that show will stay on forever. Um, and like, it's, there's still some parts of it that are still, you, you can still watch it and still get a good chuckle out of it. Like it was, it was a good show. Um, there's also a strong sort of tough on crime element to the 1970s. Um, and this is, this is following Nixon. Like this is one of Nixon's arguments was that he was going to be tough on crime. Um, and the, the films that come out of there will be far more violent 
in the 1970s that it'll tap into that sort of that that sort of primal violent urges um and this is you know you, you can get away with that in the 1970s you couldn't get away with making dirty harry in the 1950s um so you have movies like dirty harry um or not that's not a movie dirty harry the character who shows up in sudden impact and other films um you have death wish with charles bronson um and kind of similar to nixon and other politicians when they talked about being tough on crime crime was often coded as young black and male so if you watch that scene from uh uh, that's not sudden impact um whatever Dirty Harry movie, I can't think of the name of it, but the Dirty Harry clip I, I, I show here, um, I mean, that's a, it's a incredibly famous scene. Um, and it's just this, even though the, the main villains in the, the, sh- the show are, are white, um, there's, you keep seeing this over and over again, where there are just these kind of like brainless, angry, non-white, typically black, young male criminals they're just sort of thugs that are out there and they're easily and quickly dealt with through violence and that is a very that sort of falls in line with with the nixonian vision of america was this like we will just respond with violence to to social uproar especially social uproar coming from the black community um and if you notice the way that the in in that clip um the the guys are kind of portrayed as like they're using a lot of the the mannerisms and tones of black revolution, but they're just rapists and criminals. And that's that's the conservative reaction to to like angry young black men is that they're just inherently criminal. Um and I'm not saying that like, you know, the biggest racist of the of the nineteen seventies was Clint Eastwood, not even by a long shot. Um it's just that there was this this strong sort of conservative backlash in the um in media um and this tough in crime perspective um shows up a lot um but at the same time it's it's way more creative the way they do it like the films are better than a lot of the conservative stuff that was coming out before um dirty harry still has some incredibly good lines um so, yeah, and then the default, like default cons- sort of small C conservative is that um, you know, a lot of the, the sexism, the racism, et cetera, that, was, that existed, that was just seen as part of normal American society was still embraced and engaged with in a lot of media. So even stuff that might be seen as sort of socially liberal, um, MASH, the movie MASH, um, like they are, there's kind of openly discussed race, um, in a in a farcical and definitely what would be seen as a non um, sort of politically correct mean uh, manner now, um, but they're dealing with race, they're addressing racism, uh, etc. Um, but the movie is also incredibly sexist. Like there are multiple scenes um, of implied rape, um, and even one of the main characters is named Trapper, and it's based on a book um, where he was called Trapper because he quote unquote trapped um somebody on a train like that was that was and like he's a rapist like that's his name is rapey rapier like rapey mcraperson it's it's kind of fucked up um but the set that's part of the 70s um there's another part of of the mash movie where um they're angry at at major Houlihan partly because she has rank over them because they're captains 
Um, and they, they, she's, she wants to follow the rules. Um, and so they, uh, they gather everyone around camp in camp around the, around the shower, um, and essentially rig it so that the shower, um, the shower tent, all the sides go up and major Houlihan is exposed to the entire camp. Um, and that's in this supposedly socially liberal film. Um, a lot of the sexism and racism is so ingrained that that was, that wasn't even questioned. Um, and that's, that's kind of typical of the 1970s. Beyond the, the social content, um, the, the 70s were incredibly creative, um, regardless of the content itself. Um, and we can, you know, like when we were talking about Dirty Harry, uh, very conservative in, in sort of its social content, but, but pretty creative in, its, in the actual film. Um, and we'll see this also in, um, like the, uh, yeah, God, the music of the seventies, um, discontent breeds creativity and expression. We've seen this over and over again in the seventies, people were incredibly discontented. Um, so we end up with like funk, like parliament funkadelic. So click that first link. Um, and it takes you to, um, parliament doing like a seven, seven to eight minute long song um, that would show up with between like 10 and 20 people on stage. George Clinton would be dropped down onto stage in the mothership. They would have a UFO bring him down um, and they would play just the best. Like, it's good. It's just good. Um, and the, the thing about like P-Funk is they're, they're taking stuff that was they're taking like Motown stuff they're taking the psychedelic music um, they're, they're running it through a blender and creating this whole new thing um, and then the, a big part of it was the stage show like you know they have everybody up on stage George Clinton used to come out sometimes like sometimes he would just come out in a, in a diaper and start playing and then later on there's an interview with him and him and Bootsy Collins. And he's like, oh, yeah, after a while, I, I just got I got so out of shape that I wasn't going to walk around in a diaper anymore. And so Bootsy started wearing it. Um, and it was just this huge stage show. And the entire thing, it's following that 1960 sense of like shaking everything up and like messing with people's heads um, combined with really good music. And this like. P-Funk will continue to be stolen from into the present day. Um, like most of Snoop Dogg's early stuff, everything in the back was all the samples. It's all P-Funk. Um, and then you have punk. So punk is coming out of, um, a really different place. Like funk. Most of the people who are doing funk are musicians. Punk is coming out of like, nah, fuck it. I'll just do whatever I want. Um, a lot of like the Ramones could barely pay their instruments. They just picked them up and started playing around with it. Most of the songs are about two minutes because that's about as much as they could play. Um, and they would play incredibly flat, incredibly fast, um, not incredibly complex, uh, lots of screaming, lots of discontent. Um, and again, it was part of the stage show, except their stage show was the opposite of P-Funk. It was just, it was like four guys on stage, just these like skinny, long-haired, nerdy, angry guys.
playing really fast and kind of enjoying it, but also not giving a shit if you listen to it or not. Um, and that's that kind of stuff. Like punk comes out of that era and it comes out of this just like, I don't like any of this shit around me. Um, and then you have stuff like Peter Frampton, who's more sort of mainstream rock at that point. But if you play the video and he's sticking a, this tube in his mouth that George Harris, like he found like George Harrison was doing this. And so he was like, oh, that's cool. I'll do it too. Um, and it, it er, just even, even this kind of mainstream rock and like the progressive rock stuff, like they're, they're being creative. They're trying new things all the time. Um, Saturday Night Live, which sometimes sucks and sometimes doesn't, depending on the cast. When that came out, I mean, that was huge. And it was just like, whoa, what are they doing? They're just like, every week was just new, crazy stuff. Um, Cheech and Chong. Uh, like, Cheech and Chong stuff is not always the most intelligent of stuff. Like, Cheech and Chong will, if there's a, if there's a, a subtle joke, and a blatant joke, they will always go with a blatant joke, but that's all right because it's supposed to be watched when you're super high. Um, and that stuff is still funny, even when you're not. Um, like, watch the clip. Um, die, and they would record these as albums. Like, a lot of these jokes are on albums, and then they made the movies out of them. Um, and, like, those albums were still funny in the 1990s. They're still funny now. Like, I'm sure somewhere out there, there are kids still doing Cheech and Chong bits. Um, just like me and my friends were doing Cheech and Chong bits in the, in the 1990s in high school. Um, and then there's also this sort of do-it-yourself. I mean, the, when you look at the Ramones, it's, it's kind of that do-it-yourself. Like, it doesn't matter if you get a record deal or not. Just, just go out and play music. And if you don't know how to do it, it doesn't matter. Just go do it anyway. Um, the same thing is happening in film, that Ed Wood style of film we start seeing um, other people doing it. Um, and Melvin Van Peoples, Mario Van Peoples' dad, um, makes this movie called Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Or Badass, yeah. Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Um, I think I have it written down here. Sweet Sweetback's Badass Riot, but it's Badass Song. Um, and it was just absolutely insane. Like, the movie is poorly done. There's no question about it. But Melvin Van Peoples wanted to make a movie with a black hero um, that showed how black people were being screwed around with, and he wanted a black hero that was just not gonna put up with that shit and just fight back. And yeah, he's gonna be beaten and shot and all this kind of stuff, but it'll be constantly fighting back. Um, and and it's, it was cheap, it was poorly made, and it did really well. Um, it became a cult classic because it was one of the first movies that was made not for a white audience with a black person in it, but it was made for a black audience. Um, and yeah, it's, okay, there's one kind of crazy ass story about this movie. <laughs> During one of the sex scenes, um, they were actually having sex. Um, and Melvin Van Peoples got VD. Because he was in the Screen Actors Guild, he had health insurance. He used the health insurance money to finish editing the movie instead of getting the VD treatment. Uh, like, that's how dedicated he was to getting this movie done. Um, it's, uh, there's, Mario Van Peoples ended up making a movie about the making of this movie, which is almost as crazy. One small correction. Um, it was not 
uh, Bootsy that started wearing the diaper. Um, it was Gary Sheeter, uh, Star Child. Um, and I'm trying to find that, that um, after I recorded that, I'm trying to find the interview um, where Clinton said that he used to wear the diaper, but I got to find that. Um, maybe take that one with a grain of salt. And again, it's, this is the me generation. One of the things that um, people are trying to do with entertainment is, yeah, there's social commentary in there, but a lot of it is just escape. It's, I, I want to get away from the turmoil, the malaise, the sadness, the just meh of the 1970s. Um, and so we see like Cheech and Chong, it's, it's pure escapism. It's just, it's just one big silly ass movie. It's fun. Um, Happy Days is the same thing. And they're coming from two very different sort of social visions of the world um, and two very different audiences, but it's the same thing. It's just escape. It's just like, let me, let me just have a moment to myself to kind of giggle. Um, and then you have like Star Wars and Jaws. They're, they're blockbusters. They're just big monster movies. And this is the first time where people are lining up around the block to watch a movie just because we want to be entertained. You can't sit in Star Wars um, when it comes out. The amount of, you know, detail and work that goes into that thing. You can't sit in there and think about like the cost of oil. Like you will be taken out of that world for a while. In Jaws, um, you'll be taken out of um, the sort of like the closing of the plant. You're taken out of that for a moment because you're just watching this big ass shark eat everybody. Um, and the same thing like punk, um, funk, like the music is, the music is, is largely escapist. It's largely about not being here. Here is bad in the 1970s. I would rather be anywhere except for here. Um, so like I said at the start, one of the things that America has, like America, the American entertainment industry has always been incredible at is taking anything that's creative and new, even if the creativity and new comes as a reaction to the entertainment industry itself, taking that thing and commodifying the fuck out of it. Um, so the industry is going to react incredibly quickly to new things and finding, you know, if, if it sells, then, then we'll make more of it. Um, for instance, you know, Sweet Sweetback's um, badass song, that worked. Um, that like drew an audience and Hollywood looked at it. And then the next thing you know, um, the Shaft franchise has started. Um, and they're going to do, they're going to, like Shaft is a good movie, don't get me wrong. Um, and it's doing a lot of the same things. It's just that, oh, we'll, we'll put some big Hollywood money behind this thing. I'm not like super big Hollywood money, but a lot of the same stuff. Um, and it just, um, yeah, like... They're like, oh, audience is like having a black hero. We'll have a black hero in this movie. Um, we like, you like the sexual freedom that was in um, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Ride? We won't quite put that degree of sexual freedom in, but Shaf is just regularly having like hookups. And it's not even a thing. It's not something that they talk about. It's just like, oh, yeah, like Shaf just hooks up a lot. Um, like he, he hooks up with a white girl, which in the 1950s and 60s, would have been like that would have, the whole movie would have to be about that they would have to talk about that and they couldn't show them in bed together and this movie is just like it's it just happens like it's not even a big deal in the movie um he's like buddies with the gay bartender um they're not gonna like make a big deal out of it there will be some like it's the 1970s so there'll be still be some gay jokes thrown in there about it um but like 
there's a lot going on there and it's it's hollywood looking and saying oh people like this stuff well we'll throw more of it in um and the same thing with like punk um and it's kind of it backfires a little bit punk because like the general like punk rock is a little bit trolly so um they they were like oh kids like punk music and they just threw the sex pistols a crap ton of money and were like here's a bunch of money go out and make music and the sex pistols basically were like you gave us a whole bunch of money. We're going to turn this all into drugs and then do them. And maybe we'll make the music for you. Um, and yeah, you end up with this weird sort of thing where the Sex Pistols are playing. And then right after is Merle Haggard, like the next night, um, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and the, the thing is, you know, even the stuff that's commodified, a lot of it's still pretty good. Um, like Shaft is still a awesome movie. Um, but... It's, it's definitely Hollywood picking up on like, oh, you like that. Well, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to sell it to you for a profit. Um, and that's Hollywood will, will never, um, no one will ever get the, the jump on Hollywood in terms of turning around and selling it for a profit. Um, there will be coronavirus movies out within the next six months. I guarantee it. So, um, yeah, another thing that happens is disco. Now, towards the end, <laughs> People often look at disco in a very negative way, um, and it's it's because we're looking at it because of the anti-disco or through the anti-disco backlash of the early '80s. But disco starts off as inner-city, poor, gay, and black, um, and some like primarily gay and black, um, like gay people and black people. Um, but a lot of a lot of a lot of intercession there. So like gay black men were the center of disco culture. Um, and it's like early on, it's, it's just, they're these relatively inclusive clubs. Um, they weren't like, they weren't black clubs. They weren't white clubs. Everybody was kind of okay. You were, everyone was allowed in. Everyone was like, there wasn't that big a deal. There was kind of a lot of Coke, um, but they had this very sort of fun, inclusive vibe to them. Um, they are the, they are the direct predecessor of what becomes rave culture and not like big money Ibiza raves, but like 200 kids in a warehouse somewhere with a speaker system who are outcast from society. Yeah. That's what this is. Um, this was those kids within the inner city, um, creating this whole new culture, this whole new dance culture. And a lot of the early disco stuff is like, you know, you hear it's like Diana Ross, um, like lots of like danceable beats and female vocals and like hitting all the high notes. Um, that's, that's disco. Um, it's fun. It's an escape from reality. It's escape from tensions. Um, and it's, you know, disco is going to basically launch that whole club scene, um, that continues into today. And that's when Hollywood um, looks over and sees like, ooh, oh, is that something people like? Do, they, do people like disco? You like this thing? Well, we're going to make a movie about it. Um, and they pulled in a bunch of people who had literally nothing to do with disco um, and told them, make a movie about disco. And they're like, well, what do you know about disco? Nothing. Cool. Make a movie about it. Um, and it ends up being Saturday Night Fever. It's, it's a movie about like a bunch of rapey bro dudes 
who really like having fancy shirt or fancy clothes and, and nice hair um, doing drugs and, and committing a gang rape at the end of the movie. Like John, Tra- that's, that's what that movie is. Um, it's, it has nothing to do with it. They, did they go out and were like, Hey, let's find like some of the good disco acts and like have them be in the movie. No, they, they turned to the Bee Gees and were like, Hey, guess what? We want you guys to make a, an entire soundtrack and you guys get to define disco for all of white America now. Um, and it becomes a national phenomenon. Disco is everywhere. Um, and the disco that comes out is not the disco of, of these, these inner city clubs. It's not the disco of this sort of environment or the outcasts, right? The environment where the weird kids get, to get, get together and have this inclusive space and dance and just dance and forget about stuff. It becomes this over-the-top um, vision of, of wealth and just like selfish, mindless wealth. It becomes Studio 54. Um, it becomes, Studio 54 was this like elite club where you, everyone lined up outside to get in, but only the rich and famous got in. And it was just some place where people went and, and just did massive amounts of cocaine. Um, and, it, and it was some place you went to be seen rather than some place you went to dance um, to get away from your problems. And that's what Saturday Night Fever is. That's the culture that they sold through Saturday Night Fever. And that's what they made out of disco. Um, and this will actually lead to this huge anti-disco backlash. Um, and really quickly, I mean, within, you know, it goes from nothing into Saturday Night, Live, or Saturday Night Fever and then for a year or two years, it's just massive. Everywhere you look, it's just disco. And the disco that you're seeing is not, again, it's just this flashly John Travolta disco. Um, and people are incredibly upset with it. And the, the backlash against it starts pretty, pretty quickly, um, where it's, it's nothing music. It's just shallow, cokey glamour. It's not, you know, a lot of people who are into rock music got really angry. And they're like, it's not gritty and real like rock. And to be fair, um, there is some good rock music in that era, but a lot of rock music, even the good stuff, is, is Aerosmith. It's not exactly like gritty and real. It's, it's, you know, the start of big hair and spandex. Um, but there's just this anger over, over disco. And look, honestly, the, when people start screaming disco sucks, there is a disco that sucks. The, the, the disco of, of John Travolta and Saturday Night, Life, or Saturday Night Fever does suck. It's bullshit. Um, but then there's this other disco that, you know, it continues. I mean, electronic dance music comes out of disco. It comes out of that world. Um, and a lot of the reaction, there's this kind of, there's this, this event where they have, um, it's like disco sucks night or something. And some radio DJ, some rock DJ was like, okay, we're going to have a disco sucks night. And if you, get, if you bring a rock album or if you bring a disco album in, um, into the game, you get them for free and we'll burn them all in the middle of the field. And people that were there were like, well, you know, a lot of the albums people were bringing were just, there were just any rhythm and blues record, like any, any black record they were kind of coming in with. Um, and they like trashed the stadium and everything. And there's this kind of question of like, well, was this, is this anger over, class anger over the Studio 54 elite um, culture of just flaunting wealth or is it a racial anger or is it kind of combining the two together 
Um, and that's, that's still kind of there. I mean, that question of what was the disco backlash, how much of the disco backlash was against Diana Ross and how much of the disco backlash was against John Travolta. Um, and it's, it's hard to say. The thing that that's for sure is that that killed disco as a huge thing. It killed disco as a, a massive thing um, created by, by the music industry. Um, but in some ways, by killing that thing, it, it actually, the disco backlash allowed disco to, to continue being real for the people who, who it meant something to. Um, the people who need to go and dance at that club at night. Um, and yeah, and it continues on. It, it'll evolve, um, but it'll definitely continue on. Okay, and so that brings us to the end of our quote-unquote lecture for, um, for the day. Um, so go watch Star Wars or go watch Shaft. Go watch MASH if you want to. Um, pretty much any of these, these work for looking at the 1970s. Um, with Shaft and... Um, yeah, Shaft and Star Wars, you, you can, they've left a pretty prominent understanding uh, or place in, in our popular um, culture. They're, they're still making Shaft movies. They're still making Star Wars movies. Um, MASH, less so, but it, it follows this long history of, of these sort of um, lampooning war as a farce um, because of the, the just ridiculous nature um, of how we go to war, um, of the war kind of points out a lot of the ways that our societies are, are constructed around illusions. Um, and MASH sort of follows in the tradition of using war to, to, to display the illusions of our society. Um, but, uh, you can also look through them and, and see, um, a lot of, you know, MASH again, Look, go through MASH and, and see the examples of, of just like, not even sexism, but like, you know, borderline sexual assault um, that are going on in that film um, to get a sense of how, regardless of, there is some social change, but there's a lot of things that were still, um, you know, to, to the modern eye, very um, shocking and, and uh, unacceptable. Um, yeah, hopefully I will, well, I'm not going to see any of you until the end of the term, um, but hopefully uh, see everyone next term. Uh, stay safe, wash your hands, um, get your work done.